I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 through 10 is our text for today. The title of our message is Evident Salvation, a Loud Conversion. Evident Salvation, a Loud Conversion. So if you will, go ahead and turn your eyes to uh, this passage of Scripture. Uh, and we'll begin reading in verse 8. You follow along in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Father, your word is truth. It is your very word breathed out by you. So, Father, we pray, we ask, Lord, that uh, in, in these next few minutes that you would teach us from your word. Father, we pray that Jesus, your son, would be exalted as we grow to know him and love him as our king and our savior more and more. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would impress the truths of your word upon our hearts and help us to apply them to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let me go ahead and give you a main idea statement for our text today from 1 Thessalonians. The main idea is this, God's saving choice produces a gospel conversion that is noticed by the world. God's saving choice produces a gospel conversion noticed by the world. Now this section, verses 8 through 10, um, it's a part of a larger section where Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy are giving thanks to God for the Thessalonian believers. And the reason that they're giving thanks to God for the Thessalonians is the evident salvation. The salvation that they see in the lives of these Thessalonians. In verse 3, they pointed to their work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then you see in verse 4, they say, For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you. And then in verses 5 through 10, Paul gives evidences for this confidence that the Thessalonians have been chosen by God, that they belong to God. Now, last week we studied verses 4 through 7, and, and we said this, that we can know God has chosen us by looking at the gospel change in our lives. We can know that God has chosen us by looking at the gospel change in our lives. But today, as we examine verses 8 through 10, we'll see that God's saving choice produces a gospel conversion noticed by the world. Now, verses 8 through 10 are simply just a continuation of, of uh, the previous verses. There's not really a clear break. We've broken it into, into two weeks and two sermons, but it's really just one continuous thought. Um, it, this, this thought is that 
they can know that they've been chosen by God because of these evidences. In, in verse 5, we saw that the gospel came to them in the power of God. In verse 6, they received the gospel by the power of God. In verse 7, their lives became an example to other believers. All of these things point to the fact that God has chosen them, that they have received salvation. And now, Paul's going to give them two more evidences to support his claim that they have been chosen by God. That is that they have received salvation from God and now belong to him. As we studied verse 7, we saw that it was evident that this gospel change had taken place in the lives of the Thessalonians because they became examples for other believers to follow. Believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And this visible change in the lives of the Thessalonians leads right into verse 8. Right into verse 8, where it says, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that you need not say anything. The first truth we see in this passage is this. Salvation is evident when the gospel produces a conversion that cannot be hidden. Salvation is evident when the gospel produces a conversion that cannot be hidden. Now, we're going to talk about the specifics of this conversion, what it looked like, what I mean by the word conversion, and when we get to verses 9 and 10. But in this verse, verse 8, the emphasis is on the fact that the change, the conversion produced in the Thessalonians was a change that could not be hidden. It couldn't. The the key verb in this verse, the key action in verse 8, is that something sounded forth. It sounded forth. Now, the Greek word uh, that's translated sounded forth, When you look at that Greek word and its meaning, and then also the form of the word that is used there, it it refers to a loud noise that continues on. A loud noise that begins and then continues on. You could say that it's it's like a trumpet. This word is used to refer to like this trumpet sound or maybe a gong that that sounds forth, that reverberates through the hills. This gospel has produced a noise. So what Paul is saying, the gospel has produced a noise in the lives of the Thessalonians that is sounding forth from these Christians. There's two questions that we need to ask. First, what exactly is this noise? And then secondly, how loud exactly is this noise? What is this noise and how loud is it? Or in other words, how far does this noise reach? Let's start with that first question. What is this noise? This noise that was sounding forth forth from them is described in verse 8 with two different phrases. The phrase, the word of the Lord... And the phrase, your faith in God. Now these are similar phrases, but I think they point to two different aspects of what was being sounded forth. The word of the Lord phrase that you see there in verse 8 is the message of the gospel. We've seen this word, word used back in verse 5 and then again in verse 6. And then in chapter 2, verse 13, Paul's going to use this word, word two more times. This word, this word that's used here. Um, The word of the Lord or the word of God or simply the word word is used to refer to God's message of salvation through Jesus. It's talking about the gospel. The gospel is the good news message that God has provided a way for sinful humans to be forgiven and thus to become citizens of his kingdom by sending Jesus Christ, his son, to this earth to be born as a human, to go and die on a cross, experiencing God's wrath in our place, then to rise up from the dead, conquering death on our behalf. 
and, and, and his sacrifice is an acceptable one to God so that everybody who places their faith in Jesus will be saved, will become citizens of God's kingdom with Jesus as their king and will have eternal life with him forever. That's this word of the Lord. That's the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The truths of the gospel are sounding forth from these Thessalonian believers. But the phrase, your faith in God, gives us another side of this noise that is sounding forth. It's not merely the facts of the gospel that are going forth, but that the Thessalonians' belief in the gospel is going forth. Their faith in God is going forth. And this is important to note. Evidence of salvation, evidence that you are chosen by God, is not found merely in the fact that you know intellectually the facts of the gospel, but in the fact that you have believed the gospel and that it has changed your life. Their faith in the Lord was going forth, not just the facts of the gospel. What is it that's making so much noise that its reverberations are spreading to other cities and to even other countries? It's the testimony of how the gospel has radically changed the lives of those in Thessalonica who have believed in this God and his message of salvation through Jesus. Or, or we could put it this way, the message of the gospel accompanied by the testimony of the Thessalonians' faith in God, belief in the gospel, is sounding forth. It's the facts of the gospel and their belief in the gospel. That's what the noise is. But then the second question was this, how loud is this noise? I mean, it's just a whisper. Just a few people have heard about, about this, this salvation that has come into these Thessalonians, their changed way of life. No. The text says this noise has gone forth into Macedonia and Achaia, which are the two provinces of Greece, the two Roman provinces of Greece. But then it says that it's gone forth everywhere. And it's probably an exaggeration by Paul. It doesn't mean that Every person on the whole planet has heard about the salvation of the Thessalonians. But he's using the exaggeration to make the point that not only has the whole country of Greece heard this gospel noise, but this noise has spread to other countries as well. Thessalonica was a strategic location from which the noise of the gospel could be sounded forth. It was a, it was a seaport city. So a lot, of, a lot of travel coming through there and merchants because of a seaport city, but it also uh, lied on what was, uh, was known as the Ignatian Way, which was a, a very famous Roman road that connected the western and the eastern uh, uh, parts and provinces of the Roman Empire. The gospel had made such a change in the lives of the Thessalonian believers that news about their conversion was spreading like wildfire. And just remember, they didn't have modern technology and social media where news can spread all around the world in a matter of minutes just with uh, a few strokes of a keyboard or, or, or clicks of a, of a button, uh, clicks of buttons on your phone or on a, on a computer. No, they didn't have that kind of technology. It took word of mouth for the conversion of the Thessalonians to spread. And let's just say, apparently, people were talking. Their lives looked different. People were taking note. As people passed through the town, they said something's different, and they were telling other people about it. The point is this. The changed lives of the Thessalonians was so visibly noticeable that they couldn't keep it a secret even if they had wanted to. Now, I don't think they did want to keep it a secret. 
But even if they had wanted to, they couldn't keep it a secret because their lives were so visibly and noticeably changed. Here's an important truth for us. When the facts of the gospel are joined with lives changed by the gospel, a gospel noise will sound forth which cannot be hidden. When the facts of the gospel are joined together with lives changed by the gospel, a gospel noise will sound forth that cannot be hidden. The question then for us is this. Has the gospel and our belief in the gospel transformed our lives in such a way that the world around us takes notice? And whether they're attracted to it or not, whether they like it or not, they can't help but talk about the difference that they see in us compared with the rest of the world. They can't help but talk about how different we are from the world around us. But of course, that can only happen if our lives actually look different than the world around us, which is exactly what happens when we experience genuine conversion, when we experience the saving power of God through the gospel of Jesus. Salvation is evident when the gospel produces a conversion that cannot be hidden. But now let's dive a little bit deeper into this gospel change that is so huge that it cannot be hidden. What is this conversion that gets People talking. I would say, and I think the text leads us and instructs us to understand that it is a whole life conversion. A whole life conversion. The second evidence before us today of someone being chosen by God is this. Salvation is evident when the gospel produces a whole life conversion. We see this in verses 9 and 10. Salvation is evident when the gospel produces a whole life conversion. I want you to notice in verse 9, Paul draws attention to the report about the Thessalonians. While verse 8 focused on the distance that the report about the Thessalonians had spread, verses 9 and 10 focus in more detail on the report itself. The first part of verse 9 says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. I'm not going to spend too much time on that on that statement, but I, I think it tells us at least two things. I think it serves two purposes, that statement at the beginning of verse 9. Number one, it's pointing to the fact that the Thessalonians received the gospel message proclaimed by Paul and his companions. To receive Paul and his companions was to receive their message. The drastic change in their lives, which we're going to see in the rest of verse 9 and in verse 10, is a result of the gospel of Jesus preached by Paul. But there's a second purpose to that statement. It does what the end of verse 5 was intended to do. It points forward to the issue that Paul is going to address in detail in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, which was the fact that there were people in Thessalonica who were pressuring the new Christians there to believe that Paul and Silvanus and Timothy were frauds. Paul is here reminding them of the warm welcome that they gave him so that they won't forget the genuine relationship that they shared with one another. But now we come to the second part of verse 9 through verse 10, where Paul expands upon the report that he was hearing concerning the Thessalonians. Here in verse 9 and 10, God's word gives us a beautiful three-part summary of what it means to be a Christian. This is the bread and butter of what happened in the lives of these Thessalonians. As they believed the gospel, what happened that caused such a stir and had resulted in in news about what had happened spreading far and wide. In this last verse uh, and a half of chapter 1, Paul explains the conversion of the Thessalonians. And I think it's an apt explanation of the conversion of every Christian, of everyone who has been saved by the gospel. 
Now, I get that word conversion from the word translated in verse 9, turned. The word means to turn and go in an opposite direction. For you turned to God. You were converted. Christianity is a conversion. It is a whole life conversion. It is a turning from something and a turning to something else, which results in such a new way of thinking and living that it could be said that your life has been turned upside down. And others will say that you're turning the world upside down, which was the exact accusation that was made against the Thessalonian believers in Acts chapter 17. It's a turning The first aspect of conversion Paul addresses is a conversion of worship. Remember I said there's a three-part explanation or summary of Christian conversion. The first is a conversion of worship. Paul says, and how you turn to God from idols. So they're reporting how you turned to God from idols. Thessalonica was a city full of people who worshipped many gods. This was a culture immersed in Greek mythology. They thought and lived in polytheistic terms. Their interpretation of life, where they came from, what their purpose was, where they were going, what happens after death, all of that was rooted in the belief in many gods. However, when the gospel came to them and they believed the gospel, they were converted from believing in and worshiping idols to believing in and worshiping the Creator God, the living and true God. Christianity is a conversion. It is a turning to the living and true God from whatever it is you were worshiping previously. But it's not merely a change in belief that then has no impact on how you, lead, on how you live. No, it is a change that radically alters the way you live. Because how you live is determined by who or what you worship. How you live is determined by who or what you worship. What matters to you, the choices you make, what you watch, where you go, how you spend your money, what you value, what you are willing to sacrifice for, how you interpret the world events around you, how you speak, how you love, who you love, your purpose in life, your understanding of death, your view of marriage and sexuality, your value of life, your method of parenting, your attitude toward suffering, your response to evil, the way you treat others is all directly related to who or what you worship. So you can't talk about a conversion of worship without also talking about a conversion of allegiance which is the second aspect of Christian conversion that Paul describes here, a conversion of allegiance. The end of verse 9 says, to serve the living and true God. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They didn't turn to God from idols in order to keep serving idols. No, they turned to God from idols to serve God, to serve the living and true God. You express allegiance to whoever or whatever you worship. Our thinking Speaking and acting is merely an expression of our hearts. Whoever or whatever sits on the throne of our hearts determines how we live. The Thessalonians worshipped the Greek gods and goddesses which weren't even real. And the result was that they were enslaved to the sin that was associated with those gods. Thus, their lifestyles were characterized by all sorts of immoral behavior, specifically sexually immoral behavior, which Paul is going to address in chapter 4. 
But by God's power, through the gospel of Jesus, they have been set free from this slavery to the sin that was associated with the worship of these false gods. However, they have not been set free to just live however they want to live. They have been set free from false gods to be owned by the living and true God and thus to live to serve Him. Here's another important truth for you to hang on to. You will always serve someone or something because you are always worshiping someone or something. You will always be serving someone or something because you are always worshiping someone or something. Whoever you worship will have your allegiance. The one to whom you pledge your allegiance is the one you worship. Your God is the one that you serve. The question isn't, are you a slave or are you not? The real question is, to whom or to what are you a slave? Real freedom, Christian Real freedom. we got to remember this because it's going to impact how we live our lives every day. Real freedom is found in being a slave to God because then you are doing what you were created to do. Living to worship and serve the living and true God who made you, who loves you, and who has provided a means of rescue for you. We are never more satisfied in life than when we are living for the glory of the one true God. That is, when we are living to serve Him. Paul said as much in a little bit more detail in Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 23. And I just want you to, want you to listen. You can turn in your Bible if you want to. Romans chapter 6, verse 15 through 23. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness... So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you are slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal Life For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Are you a slave of idols as evidenced by the way you live? If so, then you are headed, as this passage says, for death. Or are you a slave of the living and true God as evidenced by the way you live? If so, then you are headed for eternal life. But here's the thing. It's really, really tempting to say, well, I don't serve Greek gods and goddesses. That might have been true for the Thessalonians, but hey, this is the 21st century. You're right. It is the 21st century. But the 21st century is full of gods just like every century since Adam and Eve sinned. There are formal religions which worship 
false gods. For instance, Hinduism and Buddhism consists of the worship of false gods, both of which are on the rise in our secularizing society here in, Western, in the Western world. Um, it's, it's on the rise. The practice of yoga has its roots in Hinduism. Meditation that seeks to empty the mind of everything is the practice of Buddhism and Hinduism. The notion of karma is becoming more and more popular to talk about and even believe in. But guess what? Karma is a teaching of both Hindu and Buddhist religions. But it's not just formal religions which teach the worship of false gods that we must consider and beware of. We may not live in a place where physical idols depicting gods and goddesses are present everywhere we look like was the case in Thessalonica. But that doesn't mean that we are not surrounded by idols. All around us, people are bowing to the God of money, the God of sex, the God of popularity, the God of comfort, the God of health, the God of food, the God of power, the God of entertainment. Friends, don't be lulled by the enemy into thinking you are not worshiping false gods simply because there are no statues of Zeus or Buddha in your home. But that leads us right into the third aspect of conversion that we see here. A conversion of hope. A conversion of hope. Verse 10 says, And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Genuine conversion is a conversion of worship, a conversion of allegiance, and a conversion of hope. Just like everyone worships someone or something and therefore is serving someone or something, everyone also is hoping in someone or something. And all three are tied together. Listen, if your God is money, then your hope is that a large paycheck or a large retirement account or nice stuff and lots of it will satisfy you and give you peace of mind. If your God is sex, then your hope is that feeding that urge inside of you through pornography or premarital sex or a secret affair will satisfy you and make you feel loved. If your God is popularity, then your hope is that increasing your likes on Facebook or increasing your followers on Instagram or having the most fashionable clothes or driving the coolest car will satisfy you and make you feel noticed and important. If your God is comfort, then your hope is that avoiding difficulty will satisfy you and make you feel happy. If your God is health, then your hope is that going to the gym and eating right will satisfy you and somehow prolong the coming of death. If your God is, is food, then your hope is that indulging your taste buds will satisfy you and make you forget about your worries. If your God is power, then your hope is that pushing your way to the top, even if it means pushing others down in the process, will satisfy you and give you a sense of control. If your God is entertainment, then your hope is that immersing yourself in movies and shows and whatever form of entertainment you prefer will satisfy you and give you the rest and relaxation that you crave. Now, none of those things are bad in and of themselves, but they all make terrible gods. You see, here's the problem. None of those things can actually satisfy us. And none of those things will provide us with any sort of lasting hope which can stand up to the greatest problem in our lives. 
You see, our greatest problem is that we are sinners and we rightly deserve to experience the wrath of God for all of eternity. We deserve to be punished by God in hell for all of eternity because we have sinned against the living and true God who is eternally holy. And none of the false gods in our world can provide us with the hope of rescue on that day when God's wrath is poured out. And friends, the wrath of God is coming. And neither Hinduism, nor Buddhism, nor materialism, nor any other false religion or false god in this world will be able to deliver you on that day. But we are not without hope. For God has provided a deliverer, according to verse 10, and his name is Jesus. He is God's one and only son. And he came to the earth and he satisfied God's wrath against our sin through his death on the cross. But praise God, he didn't stay dead. Verse 10 says that God raised him from the dead. And because Jesus is alive, we can know, according at least to this this verse, two things. One, because he rose from the dead, he's coming back. And two, because he rose from the dead, he is able to deliver us when he does come back. You see, Jesus can't return if he's still in the grave. And his death can't deliver us from death if he could not conquer death himself. But Jesus, Jesus, the Son of God, did rise. He did conquer death. The Father did accept his sacrifice. And one day, he is coming back and all who have an evident salvation a conversion that cannot be hidden will be delivered from his wrath on that day the word wrath here is used only in scripture of unbelievers this word is only ever used in scripture of unbelievers why because jesus has absorbed this wrath for all who are believers in him all who have received the word of the gospel all who belong to god's chosen people. Chapter 5, verse 9 of 1 Thessalonians says this, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, today you can be a part of the us in verse 10. If you will cast yourself upon Jesus, believing that He and He alone can save you, that He and He alone is worthy of your worship and your service, your allegiance, your hope, your life. You see, my hope is not in a bigger paycheck or the next sexual high or more likes on Facebook or followers on Instagram or in a more comfortable lifestyle or in a clean physical from the doctor or in a table full of food or in a position of power or in endless entertainment. My hope is in Jesus, who, as the Apostle Thomas said, is my Lord and my God. Christian conversion is evidenced by waiting for Jesus because He is our only hope. But before you close, I want you to make sure you notice and understand what Paul doesn't mean when he says that we wait. He doesn't mean that we sit around and we do nothing. He doesn't mean this for at least two reasons that we see here. Number one, Paul addresses the sin of idleness, of doing nothing, of laziness in this letter and in his second letter to the Thessalonians. There's no place in God's kingdom for laziness and sitting around doing nothing. But secondly, Paul's just said in verse 9 that they turn to serve the living and true God. And so this waiting isn't a not doing anything kind of waiting. It's a serving King Jesus kind of, of, of waiting. 
The way we wait for Jesus is by serving Jesus. And our service to King Jesus is motivated by an expectation that he is coming back one day. And this serving and waiting reflects hearts that have been transformed by the power of God through the gospel of God to become worshipers of the one true God. And church, when you experience when you experience a whole life conversion like this, the truths of the gospel and the power of God to bring about this radical conversion in your life through the gospel will produce a gospel noise that will sound forth throughout your family, community, this country, and around the world. It happened to the Thessalonians and it can happen to us. And how desperately this gospel sound needs to be heard. Our world needs to hear the noise of the gospel. Friends, our families need it. Our communities need it. Our country needs it. What our world needs is to hear the good news that Jesus can deliver them from the wrath to come. That God has the power to transform their lives. To free them from their enslavement to the gods of this age. To satisfy their hearts in the service of the one true God. To give them a hope that lasts beyond the grave. But the world will never believe us when we say that we worship the living and true God when they see us serving and hoping, hoping in the gods of this world. The world will never believe us when we say that we worship the living and true God when they see us serving and hoping in the gods of this world. The world's ears will only perk up to listen to the message of the gospel when God's chosen people show by our changed lives that the gods of this world are not our gods any longer. We've turned from them. Church, my prayer is this. That the word of the Lord and our faith in God will sound forth from His people as we live out this loud conversion, as we give evidence by the way that we live that we are saved, that we are chosen, that we belong to the living and true God. Don't dampen the sound of your salvation, Christian, but let it ring out loud for the glory of God to the praise of King Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You so much for this passage of Scripture. Father, you have, you have given us a salvation that can be seen. And people ought to be able to see the difference that You have made in our lives. Father, if there be any wayward way in us, if there is a false God that has crept back into our lives, Father, may we repent of that sin. And Father, may we make sure that You are seated firmly on the throne of our hearts so that as we worship You, we will serve You. We will, we will express our allegiance to You and You alone. And the world will see us hoping, not in the things of this world, but hoping in Jesus Christ, Your Son, who delivers us from the wrath of God because He died, because He was risen from the dead, and because He's coming back one day as the conquering King. Father, He is Your Son. He is our Savior. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, may the world be able to see loud and clear the way that we live our lives. Father, may it ring out from us like a, like a, like a sounding gong or a trumpet 
announcing that change, true and lasting change, has taken place in our lives because you have loved us through Jesus. That is our prayer, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.